If you're new with us here this morning, my name is Brent Smith. I'm uh, one of the leaders here at Christ Central, so we welcome you to Christ Central Church and welcome to Fredericton as well, if you're new to Fredericton. And so for the last few weeks, uh, we've started a series on Esther. We're fairly early on in that series uh, called The Invisible God Reigns, and uh, it's probably not a book that you've read much or studied, so it's been good so far digging into it, and we'll continue this morning. Joe helped us see chapter 1 last week, and this morning we're going to pick things up in chapter 2 in verse 5. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2, and we'll see how the story goes from here and what we can learn from it. So if you remember last week, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, we go with Xerxes because it's so much easier to say, uh, he throws a party, he gets drunk, he feels like it would be a good idea to parade his wife, Queen Vashti, around in front of his buddies, and she says not so much, and he gets upset, he gets upset because he's a, he's a bit of a proud, selfish man, and his wife bruised his ego in front of his buddies, and so uh, his advisors say, you should get rid of her and find a better woman to be queen, and for them, better apparently means younger and prettier and more compliant, and so that's what they set out to do. And so when we get to chapter 2, uh, as Joe mentioned last week, Joe, uh, chapter 2 fast-forwards about three years, and the king is there, his anger against Vashti has calmed down, and he's sitting there, uh, you kind of get the feeling he's a bit lonely and a bit sad, maybe regrets what he's done of acting stupid and losing his wife. And he's got maybe his head slumped into his hand and the ancient Persian version of Andy Jones is singing Love Hurts in the corner. <laughs> Persian version. Persian yeah. And the advisors say, we got to do something quick because in those days when the king ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? We've all worked for a grumpy boss at one time or another. It's just like that except with the ever-present fear of execution if you make a mistake. So we got to have the king happy. And so they say, hey, we'll gather up all the young, beautiful virgins in the empire, and you can pick the one that pleased you the most to be your new queen. And chapter 2, verse 4 ends by saying that this pleased the king, and he did so. And so we'll pick things up in verse 5. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll read 5 to 18. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us. We do thank you that you're a faithful, loving Father uh, to us. And we just pray that you'd be with us here this morning by your Spirit. You'd make your Word come alive, that your Word would be living and active this morning. We don't want to just be hearers of your Word. We want to be doers. We want to have eyes that see and ears that hear and hearts that understand what you want to say to us this morning. And so we pray that you would come, that you'd encourage us, that you'd lift our heads and we want to be changed uh, through your spirit, by your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jacob. Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, 
the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was all, also was taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months after, under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king, in this way she was given whatever she desired to take, the, to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who, was taken, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had the charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus, I probably say it different every time I say it, so it's fine. <laughs> <clears throat> into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity." So, our title this morning is Compromises and Promises. It's a bit hard to see compromises. Promises is a little bolder underneath. Maybe that's the way it should be, hey? So we'll look at a couple compromises and we'll look at a couple promises as well. So in Esther 2, we meet two more of the four main characters in the book of Esther. We've already met the king. Now we're introduced to Mordecai. And Esther, Esther is Mordecai's cousin. Her parents both died. Mordecai takes her in, raises her as his own daughter. And it says that she was a young woman who had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And because of that, because of her physical appearance, she has chosen to come to the palace and possibly be queen. So this is an empire that really only cares about the superficial. This is a contest, so to speak, to find a new queen of Persia and the only requirements are young, beautiful, and unmarried. There's no question on wisdom, there's no question on character, there's no question on family, heritage, and not much has changed today really. The empire's value system today only cares about the outside. The, the Persian empire is basically the anti-kingdom of God. God starts with the inside, with the heart, and the empire starts on the outside with appearances. 
God cares about who we are. Now, I might casually at some times call this a beauty pageant, but we should notice that there's some pretty distinct and harsh differences here between uh, what we have and what we see today with the beauty pageant. This is a contest to find the new queen of Persia, but there is no application for this. There is no application. Girls within the Persian Empire did not decide whether to go or not. Everybody's name was in the running simply by being alive. You were th your name was thrown in to the hat. And second, the losers were not going home after the contest was done. If you summoned, this was now your life. And if the king liked you, you became queen. And if he didn't, you lived a comfortable, albeit pointless life inside the palace for the rest of your life. Either way, there was no going back. In the Persian Empire, everyone existed to serve the empire. Everything that everyone possessed, including themselves, belonged to the king. So men, women, sons, daughters, if the king wanted your son to serve as a eunuch in the palace, your son served as a eunuch in the palace. He did not care about how you were going to get your harvest in that year or your family business that you were planning on passing down to him. He got what he wanted. And so we shouldn't sugarcoat it or sanitize it in any way. This was a cruel system to feed a selfish king. And it's a harsh reality that because of the freedom that we enjoy, we don't really have much bearing for. And so you can imagine the varying responses of the girls as this edict goes out. Some uh, likely would have gone against their will. Maybe they had plans to marry, have a family, live with the people that they loved. You can imagine mothers and fathers crying and weeping as their daughters are carried away. Others maybe would have been outraged at being passed over. What do you mean? I'm not young enough and I'm not pretty enough. Let me on that wagon. I'm coming, right? And still the majority would probably have been uh, ecstatic at the possibility of this new life. It would have been like Lotto 649, right? The ancient world was a harsh place to live, and this was a potential free pass at a very, very comfortable life. So, varying responses, and the Bible doesn't tell us what Esther's reaction was. What we do know is that she went, and here we begin to see the first of many compromises that Esther makes. And so we read Esther 2, verse 8. It says, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And so here, the first compromise is a compromise of authority. The king's edict goes out, an edict that would go out, that would go against many of Esther's beliefs, an edict that flies in the face of who Esther is as a Jew, and yet Esther goes along. Although a Jew, a worshiper of God, she apparently has no qualms about just going with the flow, even though she would know all that it would mean for her. And if we think, well, it's a bit hopeless, it's a situation that she couldn't really avoid how could she go against the king's edict we should remind ourselves of another woman in the bible who went against a king's edict moses mother 
Jochebed in Exodus 2. We read Moses' mother, the Pharaoh's edict goes out that all male Hebrew babies are to be taken and killed, and she did not just go with the flow. She hid him when she couldn't hide him any longer. She put him in a basket, and events went in such a way that she got him back and raised him. And why does she do that? She could have handed her baby over and protected the rest of her family, but she goes against the king's edict, puts not only her baby's life at risk, but her life and probably the life of her whole family. And Hebrews 11 tells us that she did that because she did not fear the king. In Hebrews 11 we read, it says that she hid him because she did not fear the king's edict. She knew that there was a greater king. She did not compromise on the issue of authority. So yes, we are to obey those in authority over us, but when their edicts do not line up with the greater authority of our God, we must go with the greater. We read in 1 Peter, it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We must honor those in authority, be subject to them, but there's only one that we should fear, and it's not the king and his edicts. It's God. And so we all face opportunities to compromise on the issue of authority, whether it's the laws passed down in government or the way our boss might run his company that we work for, we have decisions to make. Who am I going to fear here? Who is my authority in this situation? Do I just go with the flow because it seems inevitable? I don't have any options. I'll probably just bring more harm upon myself. Or do I put my trust in God and see Him as my ultimate authority? Fear Him and trust Him with the consequences. So we have an issue of a compromise on authority. Second, we have an issue of the compromise of identity. If we look at verse 10, it says, Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And so, who is Esther? She is a Jew, but on Mordecai's advice, she hides it. Nobody knows about her faith, who she is, her upbringing, etc. She apparently lives in this tension between her Jewish heritage, which is a part of her identity, and her Persian culture, which is also a part of her identity. And apparently at this point, her Persian culture is winning out. Even the fact that she's the only character in the book who's identified with two names, Hadassah, her Jewish name, and Esther, her pagan name, kind of represents the tension that she's in. And if we think, well, wouldn't that be the best course of action? She couldn't just come out and identify herself as Jewish. She wouldn't win then. It would probably all go downhill from there. Maybe, but we also lo should look at her situation and compare it with another in the Bible that was in a very similar situation, and that's Daniel. Daniel, also carried off into exile in Babylon, 
also in the king's courts, but he doesn't hide his faith, he doesn't hide his heritage, he doesn't compromise his identity and who he is to try to get ahead. He and his three friends, they live like Jews, even in the palace, even when the chief of the eunuch says, hey, I don't know that you should live like this, I don't think it's going to go well for you, I don't think it's going to go well for me, who's been put in charge of you, you should probably live more like us Persians. You should assimilate a little better. And then we read in the end of chapter 1, it says that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom in the end of Daniel. So not only did it not go worse for them, it went better. Against all odds, not only did things not get worse, they grew in favor with the empire because of God's intervention, even though they remained unassimilated and hold tight to their identity as Jewish people. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, you know that things aren't always rosy. And a few chapters later, their unassimilation gets them thrown in a furnace and a lion's pit, right? It's not always peachy, but the reality is the outcomes might vary, the consequences might vary, but our attitude towards not compromising on our identity and knowing who we are in Christ and living out of that should not vary no matter what the consequences might be. No matter if we get lifted up like uh, David or whether we get thrown in jail like Joseph or whether we get lifted up like Joseph and get thrown in a lion's den like Daniel, the consequences might change. Knowing who we are in Christ and living out of that should not change. We should not compromise on our identity. Joe and I were in Moncton a few weeks ago and I saw a poster, I think it was a quote by Ellen DeGeneres, and it said, beauty comes from truly knowing who you are. And Joe and I laughed for an unreasonably long time about how funny it would be if we took a Sharpie and wrote, in Christ, at the end of that. <laughs> beauty, knows from, beauty comes from knowing who you are in Christ. And then, anyway... Joe and I, and our elder sense of humor, I guess. That was our entertainment for quite some time. Beauty comes from truly knowing who you are in Christ. We live out of our identity in Christ in all circumstances, despite the consequences, because we know that that is where our beauty lies. That is where our happiness lies. So like Esther and Daniel, we all face opportunities all the time where we have to decide between being faithful to our identity as followers of God or just floating along with the cultural expectations. We have to choose, am I a follower of Christ or am I just a part of the crowd? Do I make a stand here knowing that I'll be in the minority, knowing that people will know that I'm a Christian, or do I stay seated and let everything roll on. Am I a Christian who happens to be a student at university or am I a student at university who happens to have some religious uh, appointments on the weekend? When I was in my early 20s, I listened to a sermon by John Piper called Boasting Only in the Cross that he preached at Passions One Day Conference in 2000 and it was one of those landmark messages in my life, you probably have ones similar. 
And he started the message with this. And I was driving in my 94 Chevy Cavalier through the mouth of Keswick to give you a picture. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things and be set on fire them by them. But I know that not everybody in this crowd wants your life to make a difference. There are hundreds of you who don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. So yes, we need wisdom, we need discernment, and we never want to rock the boat for the sake of rocking the boat. But I know from my own life that in my weakness, and in my flesh, it's very easy to paint wisdom and discernment over cowardice and the desire for having people to like me. Do we want to make a difference or do we just want to be liked? And more often than not, you can't have both. Authority, identity, eventually these compromises lead Esther to spend the night with the Persian king. And this is where many through the ages have tried to make this not as sketchy as it is. Everything from nothing really happened to it's okay because she eventually saved all the Israelites have been given, but in the end we can't really avoid the most obvious reading of the text, no matter how disappointing it might be for us. Esther spends the night with the king in stark contrast to someone like Joseph in Genesis 39 who runs from Potiphar's wife and doesn't compromise and ends up spending several years in jail because of it. As one commentator put it, if someone is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience to God's law is always an option. If somebody is willing to suffer the consequences, full obedience is always an option. So again, we all face these compromises. We have to decide sometimes in a thousand small decisions a day, will we do what is right or will we do what is culturally acceptable? Will we take on biblical standards for sexuality or will we adopt the messages of the culture around us? How far are we willing to go to get the good life? We see Esther's compromises and we see how it worked out for her quite well by the world standards, really. She wins the contest, she's the queen, the king's so happy he throws a party and gives the people a tax break. But when faced with our own compromises, what can we learn from Esther's story? When we're faced with our own compromises, whether ahead of us or the compromises that we've already made, what can we learn from Esther's story? So two things, we've looked at the compromises, now we look at the promises. One, to strengthen us um, looking ahead at situations that might lie ahead of us, the other looking back at decisions that we've already made.
First, looking forward at compromises that lay before us, we have a situation in front of us where we can follow God or we can compromise, disobey, reject God's authority, conceal our identity, whatever it might be, and do our own thing. And what does Esther reminds us? It reminds us that disobedience has consequences. Disobedience has consequences. It's perhaps not the warm hug that we were hoping for, but in one of the most one of the most important things in the Christian life is to see sin for what it for what it is, to see its pain and its hurt and its destruction. And as we saw this summer going through the armor of God, Satan loves to conceal those things and promise us the world and promise us joy and promise us peace and promise us pleasure, but his end game is the complete opposite. It's despair and turmoil and destruction and loneliness. So we're not just talking about eternal consequences for sin. The Bible makes that clear. There are eternal consequences for our sin. The wages of sin is death. It's eternal separation from God. And unless we run to Jesus and trust his death and resurrection to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us right before God, to give us a new resurrected life. If we die in our sin, we are eternally separated from him. The eternal consequences of our sin, our rebellion against God, is the most serious, sobering thing that you can think about. And maybe some of you came in there this morning with a big garbage bag full of past sin and compromises and moral failures, big things, small things, known things, hidden things. And you need to know that forgiveness is available to you this morning. Forgiveness is available to you this morning at a great cost to God, the life of His Son, but freely given to you. So if you've never come to Jesus for those things, that's available for you this morning. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from, listen, all unrighteousness. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Our sin, trusting in Him, the eternal consequences are wiped away. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. But we also need to remind ourselves that often our sin has consequences here on earth that we still carry. Our sin, our compromise, our moral failure can cause pain and hurt to ourselves to those around us, and sometimes to those far away from us as well. If we just look at this story, the whole reason that Esther is in Persia in the first place is because of the disobedience of generations before her. They rebelled against God and suffered the consequences of being carried off into exile. The reason that Esther is still in Persia is because of disobedience, not returning to Jerusalem when Cyrus said that they could return. Instead of going back to the land promised to them by God, they chose to stay right in the heart of a pagan empire. And they settle for less 
than what God had for them, and they chose familiarity over faith. And even Esther herself, her compromises have now separated her from her community of faith. Will she ever be able to observe the Sabbath again and eat kosher foods and do all that she's commanded to do? The sin of the Israelites had consequences that were far-reaching. And in the same way, we need to see sin not just as some personal thing that only affects us and can be completely wiped clean by the grace of God. Yes, before God, the eternal consequences of our sin can be wiped clean, but we shouldn't make the mistake of seeing sin as a personal thing. God helps God help us to see the wake of destruction that sin can cause in our lives and in other lives. We see when David sinned with Bathsheba, committing adultery, murdering her husband, we hear him cry out in Psalm 51. We see him experience the forgiveness of God for that. But there are still some brutal, harsh, earthly consequences that he then endures because of that. God is serious with sin. He does not take it lightly, and neither should we. I'm reading through Jeremiah right now. He takes sin seriously. He says, I, I broke your bonds, and yet you said, I will not serve. I, I fed you, you were well fed, and yet you committed adultery. You wanted to run and serve gods of foreign countries, and now you will serve the foreigners in another land. He takes sin very, very seriously. So when sin is before us, we need to hear the loud promise of God that even forgiven sin can have brutal consequences here on earth. So I start with that promise because the next promise comes with the great danger that you might take what I say, or worse yet, God's words, and use it to justify sin and compromise. Because the second promise is this, is that God reigns even over our moral failures. So yes, there are earthly consequences to our sin, but Romans 8.28 says, For we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to to his purpose. For we know that how many things? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That is amazing. Because of that one small word, three letters, all. All things. He works all things together for our good. And so when we come to Jesus and we put our trust in him and we follow him, he forgives us of our sin. Before him, that's wiped clean. We're made righteous before him. And he also binds himself to the promise that he will work all things together for our good. All things includes our compromises and our failures and our mistakes, our disobedience, our going our own way. In his providence, his reigning over all things, he reigns over your past in such a way that he works even in the worst of situations for your good. It's mind-blowing 
he works all things together for your good. So that's why I said that this promise is for looking back and not for looking ahead. We aren't to take this promise and say, well, I'll go ahead and I'll do this and I'll do that and I'll disobey here and I'll sin here and I'll enjoy the pleasures of my sin and then in the end, God's going to work it together for my good anyway. Double blessing on me. Woo! To quote a wise man, eh! <laughs> wrong. I don't do it as good as Joe, but <laughs> wrong. That's why it's for looking back. It's not meant to look forward and justify our disobedience and our going off, but what a comfort it is looking back and seeing the compromises and the failures that we've made, knowing that He reigns even in those things. What a comfort it is for our checkered, broken, baggage-filled past that we have. And if you say, well, what about, you know, some really big, big sin? What about this thing that I did, did that caused so much pain and so much hurt and so much devastation? We just need to look at Esther. She didn't fear God. She went with the king's edict. She feared uh, the king more than the edict. She abandoned all of her customs and practices as a Jew. She ate the wrong food. She did the wrong things. And eventually she slept with a pagan king and became the queen of a pagan empire. And then God works in that situation, in all of that, all of that junk, all of that compromise. He works to bring the redemption of all of the people of Israel. He, out of this worst possible situation, he brings the best possible good, the salvation of the entire nation of Israel. We shouldn't try to dress Esther up as some pure, pious princess because when we do, we lose this glorious truth that people, that God can use people like Esther, people like us who compromise, who fall away, who uh, fail, who don't recognize His authority, that hide their identity. God can use people like that to bring out good from our lives. If we try to elevate Esther up here into some uh, you know, Jewish superheroine, status, we lose the glorious truth of Romans 8.28 that He works all things together for our good. It doesn't mean that what we've done is right. And it doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. And it doesn't mean that we should sin all the more. What it does mean is that when you look over your life and you see your failure and your disobedience and your compromise, and as you begin to drown in regret over your past and what ifs, God comes and He says, hold on, your failures are not greater than my grace. Your compromises are not greater than my rule and reign over your life. And when I say that I reign, I reign even over your failure. So some of you may be here this morning and your life feels like a constant merry-go-round of regret over your past and hopelessness over your future. God will never be able to use me. Look at what I've done. How could I ever do anything for Him? How can any good come out of my life now that I've done this? And God wants to tell you this morning through the story of a young Jewish girl compromising her faith 
that you might not see it, you might not be able to understand it, it might be confusing, but I am working all things together for your good, for those who love me and are called according to my purpose. Such is His powerful, sovereign grace. Some of you this morning will have compromises in front of you, much like Esther, compromises on authority, on your identity, moral choices in front of you, and we need to see sin for what it is. Don't let Satan mask the earthly consequences that will happen from that decision. Don't let him promise you the world and the joy and the peace. Get in the Word, get in prayer, and see your decision for what it is. See the consequences that will come from it. But others here this morning are carrying around past failures and compromises, and it's like a big old sack tied to your ankle, and you've just been dragging it around your life. And you know that God's forgiven you. You know that your sin has been nailed to the cross, but you've been dragging around this hopelessness because of things that you've done, past failures and compromises, and you feel like you've been written out of God's plan to build His kingdom here. And this morning, God wants His sovereign, powerful grace over your life. He wants His promise of Romans 8.28 to be the knife that cuts the rope. So that you can walk free saying, yes, what I did was wrong. It caused pain. I sinned against others. I sinned against God. But in the mind-blowing, heart-exploding, life-resurrecting love of God, He's going to work it for my good. It might be something big, like with Esther. It might just be that you are able to love much because you see that you've been forgiven much. But He promises to work it for your good. And so we need to be overcome with the great love of God this morning. The love of God that says you were rebellious in high school, you were an idiot in university, 2014 was a mess, last week you were a failure, you weren't so hot when you walked in here this morning, and I'm going to use all of those things for your good in the end. Such is the amazing love of God for you. Such is the amazing love of God for you. I mean, what kind of, first of all, what kind of power are we dealing with here? What kind of love are we dealing with here? What kind of God are we dealing with here that He says, I will work all things together for your good? It is power that goes beyond anything that we can imagine. It is love at a depth that we will never realize. No wonder Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He is an amazing love of God, and He is for you in ways and to depths that you will never realize. He is for you. He will work all things together for your good. And I know some of you are in situations where that seems over here and your situation is over here and you say, how in the world could that ever happen? How could any good come 
from that decision that I made or that event that happened. He promises it. Are we going to stand on the truth of God's word or are you just going to stand on the logic that you have of your situation? He will work all things together for your good. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves under your word this morning. We thank you for uh, what you've shown us through Esther. And uh, we come this morning and we just, uh, first we just say that we've failed you many times. We've compromised in many situations. Some of us who are older have a longer list and some of us who have a shorter list, it's only because we're younger that we have a shorter list. But we've compromised much and we thank you this morning that we've been forgiven much. We pray, Father, first that you would help us to see the great extent of your love and your forgiveness to us. Help us to see the great price that you paid for that forgiveness that you give us so freely, the death of your son. It might be um, familiar to us. Help us to see it new again that you gave your son for us, that you made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become your righteousness. We thank you for what you've done on the cross. And Father, as we look ahead at situations that lie ahead, we pray that you would help us to see sin for what it is, that you'd help us to take off the blinders, to uh, by the, the light of your Son, you would blow away that mist so we could see clearly, and uh, we'd make decisions that are glorifying you. And as we look back at compromises in the past, as we look back at some baggage that we might be carrying in our life, and we know that you've forgiven us, but we've just been filled with regret, and we've been filled with the hopelessness about the future, we just pray, Father, that you would come, uh, that your spirit would come with the promise that you work all things together for our good, and that rope would be cut. We'd walk in freedom knowing that, yeah, we've made some mistakes, but you can use us. We're not written out of the script. And you can use us to build your kingdom just like you did with Esther. That you can take those situations and you can bring it to something redemptive and something glorious in the end. We praise you for the depth of your love and your power. You're a good father and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brent. We have a few minutes. So rather than rush away from where we're here right now, um, I think let's just all stand. And uh, just Andy's just going to play.